Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. Glad to have you back with us. And if this is your first time, uh, please do head on over to YouTube and all the audio platforms. Subscribe, share the content. Um, if, again, your new Strategy International podcast is produced for Strategy International, a global think tank with a wide array of experts uh, focusing on a variety of issues, including international relations, politics, um, economy, security, defense, environment, and much, much more. Speaking of experts, we are welcoming today Dr. James Phelps. He's a professor at uh, Nova South uh, Eastern University in Florida. Aurora University in Illinois, and Capital Technical University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Phelps, thank you for doing this. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, George, for having me. It's it's a pleasure, uh, and uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to wish you and obviously all our listeners and viewers a happy new year. Uh, I think this will probably be the first uh, episode, or if not the second episode, that will be published in the new year, so... uh, Best wishes to all of you and to you um, and to you, James. Uh, let's just hope that 2023 is uh, is a much better and more peaceful year than the one that we just saw. I agree. Uh, you are an international affairs uh, specialist. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, we, we've spoken about the, the, the war in Ukraine uh, uh so many times on this on this podcast, but because you're an expert in uh, in international affairs, I, I you know we'd be remiss not to talk about the Russia Ukraine conflict. I mean, it it took such a huge part of 2022, um, obviously regionally uh, in, in in Europe, but also with the repercussions it had uh, on a world uh, on a world stage. Uh, and, and it's funny because almost about a year ago, you know, more more or less. There were all these speculations on what might happen in the region. I think the opinion was pretty divided on uh, uh, on Russia not engaging in war, not crossing that line. But there were other experts that were thinking that, you know, NATO had already crossed that line, that Russia had been warning them for years and that war was inevitable. Where did you stand uh, on, on that issue? Did, did, did you think that nothing would happen? Or were you on the side that believed that war was pretty much inevitable? Uh, well, and I was on the side that believed that the war was not only coming, but was coming much sooner than than most of the Western uh, pundits were and, and analysts were saying it was going to come. In fact, uh, because because people kept saying it's never happening, it's not going to happen, Russia would never do that, they'd get their butts handed to them, so on and so forth, NATO would get involved, you kept hearing this stuff over and over. So I sat down and did a a deep dive analysis of what Russia was doing, and what Russia was saying about what it was doing, and not from Western media sources, but I went to the media uh, in Russia and across the, you know, China and the Middle East and the central stand areas of Asia and listen to what they were saying rather than what is, um, uh, shall we say, you know, the, the repetitive brain speak of commonality that you get through uh, Western media sources where everybody just basically reiterates the exact same words, just in a different language. And what I saw was alarming enough that I actually published um, a multi-page prediction uh, on medium.com in September of uh, 2021, predicting what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and how it was going to happen, uh, beginning with a cyber attack and leading into an actual uh, major invasion of the country from multiple directions of Ukraine. And I went ahead and posted it on medium.com so that there would be a permanent record of it because, you know, so many times people say, well, I predicted that 20 years ago, or I predicted that two years ago. And then you turn around and you look and you can't find anything that said that they predicted it Mm -hmm. anywhere. I'm one of those people who likes to say, well, 
I'm going to make a prediction. Let's put it in writing and make it available to people so that later on I can refer back to it. And I was correct. I was correct across the board with one exception. I was off by about three months on the actual date of the invasion. And so being right about that was um, it was a good feeling to know that my analytical abilities were still working, but it was a bad feeling to realize how, that we were facing a situation where the potential of nuclear conflict between um, nuclear armed nations was literally, you know, could, could happen at any point in time from that day forward, from that February date of invasion onward. And we're still under that threat. And there is a real concern that people need to have that that could still come about. Um, so, yeah, I was on the side that said it's coming, it's going to happen, and here's how it's going to happen. Um, yep. How's that sound? Yeah, it's great. And, of course, I'm inviting everyone uh, to go over that uh, over there and read it. And, of course, if you want further information, there's always strategyinternational.org where there are a number of publications on this war and, of course, on many other issues uh, and topics. Um, so strategyinternational.org for that. Uh, the question that I have, and, and you know, we're not going to get into details again. Uh, I mean, there's there's numerous episodes that I invite everyone to go on Facebook, uh, on on YouTube, sorry, and all other um, audio platforms to 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 listen to, uh, where we talk more uh, in detail about what's happening on the ground and you know how everything evolved. The question that I have, and you know, most certainly many watching or listening to this. Uh, have as well is when or how will this conflict end do you see a, a, a an end soon or is this more of you know a lengthy uh conflict that we're we're still going to be stuck into you know in two three years from now the the major part of the conflict itself in my mind is going to last at least one more year maybe a year and a half before um, a stalemate position is met. But as we all know, that doesn't mean that the war, the conflict ends. There will continue to be um, subversive uh, um, attacks conducted by insurgents um, or rebels or perhaps patriots, depending on your point of view, in the various occupied areas. That's going to keep happening. There will continue to be um, occasional attacks in Russia at Russian military bases or transportation lines and disruptions of those uh, uh, facilities and equipment and stuff as time goes forward. There will be a tit-for-tat exchange of weapons periodically along um, borders as they you know, apply pressure at one point and then withdraw from another point and so on. Uh, but the there will be that that's how it's going to go in the long run before we get to a, a final termination point down the road. The only way this terminates is either a collapse of Russia politically, which is highly unlikely, um, or a collapse of the Ukrainian government and a replacement with a either a, a forced neutral or Russia centric government in Ukraine which is what fundamentally the opposite of that is fundamentally what led to the invasion in the first place mm -hmm. was the, uh, the U S and the Western countries of Europe turned around and helped implant a anti-Russian government um, to replace the pro-Russian elected president. And as a result of that, Russia said enough's enough. We're not playing this game anymore. We've warned you, we're going to stomp on you now and prove it. Russia's learned some hard lessons about the true effectiveness and capability of their military or lack thereof mm -hmm. in the face of dedicated opposition. You know, Russia hasn't faced a dedicated opposing force in conflict since Afghanistan in the 1980s. And, you know, we saw them leave Afghanistan with their tail between their legs in the face of, 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 an armed Mujahideen that was armed by the United States with U.S. weapons to fight them. Now Russia's had another chance to experience that in a direct face-on conflict with 
Western weapons and Western tactics. And it's not a pretty sight, but they're learning from it. Mm -hmm. And Russia has a long history. Oh gosh. I mean, we all know this. You've talked about it on, on a strategy international many times, you know, Russia's history of learning from past lessons and conflict is so extensive that they are going to apply those those lessons, what they've learned from them. And it's not going to be good for the opposing forces. It's going to be bad. And, you know, technology from the West wins as long as the West can continue to produce and deliver the technology and the advanced assets that the Ukrainians have available to them. The day you stop getting or delivering uh, new rocket units for the HIMARS system, uh, new drones, new uh, uh, surface-to-air, air defense weaponry, and stuff like that, the day that gets cut off is the day that Ukraine loses, mm-hmm. period. It's just what's going to happen. Do you think that there's a possibility of that happening, or are the Western partners way too invested at this point to to, to pull off? The Western partners are fighting an economic conflict inside their own countries that they've imposed on themselves through the sanctions that they put on Russia after the invasion, as well as bad monetary policy across the board, whether you're talking the U.S. Federal Reserve or the International Monetary Fund or whatever, you know, the World Bank. I mean, the the economic policies we've instituted to punish, supposedly punish Russia are, they're not working, Mm -hmm. except they're punishing the Western people considerably. And our people in the West are going to rise up sooner or later and say enough's enough. Plus, we have drawn down our stockpiles, our reserves of weaponry to a point where we are now activating weapons from the 1960s and delivering them with modifications into the field for the Ukrainians to use. Um, you know, like I said, when you run out of the technologically capable assets that you are delivering, then mass overruns whatever is left in that country. Mm -hmm. There's literally so many more people, uh, and so many more soldiers and so many more, uh, old style assets that Russia can throw at the conflict um, that Ukraine can't stop the Russians when the, when the technology stream is turned off. Right. I want to get back to what you're saying about, you know, the possibility of uh, a change in government, whether in Russia or in Ukraine to potentially uh, alter the course of this war. You know, we we had an episode with uh, with Doctor Grossman, um, which I invite obviously everyone uh, to go and watch. And he was uh, he made up he brought up an interesting point. He said that in both countries there is this sense of patriotism that is rising, and the more that this war uh, continues, the more the, the closer that the population gets to the government's decision in perpetuating this conflict. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that that is is true? Is there a validity in that? And if there is a validity in that, do you think that there's any possibility that it might change and that these populations may turn against their governments? I would say Grossman was Dr. Grossman's right. He's a uh, he, he's an excellent analyst in in that area, and you know I've um I've 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 listened to him and I've read his work and all, and he is, he's right on about the issue of patriotism and patriot, patriotic forces uh, being supportive of a government. That is particularly true in Russia, where the political narrative is tightly controlled by the media and by the government itself. In Ukraine, um, 
the Ukrainian people are awful strong. They're very strong. They have been invaded a few too many times, I think, to be to back down. Uh, you know, the the old foe, older population remembers what it was like when they were a Soviet state. Um, there aren't very many people who remember it was like under the Nazis, but there are a few of them. They don't fight anymore. I mean, you're in your hundreds at that point in time. But the, you know, the, even the older people who remember the Soviet state are teaching the younger people, you know, you have to fight for your freedom and for your rights, because if you don't, you're in big trouble. Um, you know, totalitarian governments tend to be abusive of their populations. So that is a factor. That's a factor only as long as you can provide the basics necessary for your society and culture to survive. When those basics start getting eliminated and become more and more sparse or scarce or non-recoverable, people turn around and say, maybe this was a bad decision. You know, we poked a bear with a sharp stick. Mm -hmm. Bad idea to poke bears mm -hmm. with a sharp stick. And this is where the Ukrainian population would more likely than not move away from support for their government and move towards one that says, you know, let's get somebody who will at least stop this long enough for the power and the water to get turned back on, for the heat to start coming back into our houses and so on. To, to where we can get economic benefits without waiting on the Americans to send us another, you know, hundred million dollars in cash to support payments to our employees and so on. I mean, sooner or later, America is going to cut that off and probably sooner rather than later mm -hmm. with the change in the house of representatives this week. So, you know, at some point, that flow of arms and ammunition and that flow of money and supplies and goods and food and everything else, it's terminating. And when that happens, people start to look around them and say, well, you know, why are we, why are we the, the bread basket of the world um, eating grass and cabbage soup mm -hmm. cooked over a wood fire outdoors because nothing works. Mm -hmm. So you That's believe the problem. So you believe that attrition will kick in before any negotiation uh, would ever lead to anything? Both sides are refusing to negotiate. Yeah. And when you refuse to negotiate, to even begin to talk, even through third parties, that's a bad thing. Um, in any negotiation that comes about, We'll have Russia mandating the replacement of Zelensky with a neutral government as a minimum, a guaranteed neutral government that won't lean towards NATO and the EU, but concurrently doesn't have to lean towards Russia. And it will come with a sacrifice of territory, which Zelensky and the current government and the Western nations oppose considerably. I mean, almost strictly across the board. That opposition, <clears throat> that opposition only lasts until the Germans have to burn wood to heat their homes, mm -hmm. and that's coming. We're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about energy a little bit later because uh, it's uh, obviously one of uh, the main repercussions of this war. Of course, aside of uh, aside the, the the horror happening in Ukraine, I mean one element that has been felt throughout the world and especially. Uh, in EU uh, is uh, energy security. And I want to get to that. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about migration. Um, there are obviously millions of people seeking refuge. Uh, I, I mean, we're seeing them in waves. Uh, and this is not just now. I mean, we, we, we've seen it mostly uh, ever since the rise of uh, ISIS and uh, the war in Syria. Uh, how is the shift, uh, you know, the, the shift in population, how will it impact you know, domestic or regional politics in in Europe, or or uh, or the Americas, are 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 these regions or countries economically and socially uh, prepared or adequately uh, uh, equipped to um, to take in all these migrants? No, 
No, you, you don't. In Europe, you don't have the ability to carry that load of people. Um, uh, not at all. I mean, you've already got millions, not a few, but millions of, of Syrians who have been placed into camps in Turkey. And then many of them escaped those camps and have relocated via Greece into the European Union. You have um, Afghanis that just are, are running to get out of, of the way of the Taliban that are being relocated into Europe. You have uh, Iraqis, you have Kurds, you have well, you've even got Turks, the people who were against Erdogan and had to escape from there. I've got friends in the United States that that uh, are fighting for their asylum in the U.S. because the alternative is a 16-year prison sentence in Turkey. Turkish prisons are not the nicest places on the face of the earth. Okay, they're nothing like an American prison, um, and our prisons are bad enough. Uh, certainly not like a prisons in Sweden and Norway and in Germany. Um, so you have that issue. You've got 45,000 Albanians are about to be loaded on airplanes and flown to Rwanda, thanks to a decision by the high court in Britain that said it is legal to load these illegal immigrants up and send them to another country and to pay that country to take them. Mm -hmm. You know, something like uh, it was 100 million pounds or so, I think is what the number was for the Rwandan government to take these Albanians. Uh, the Albanians don't want to go to Rwanda, but they're being flown there because the new prime minister and the new government in England has said, no, we're not taking any more. And if you came here illegally, we're sending you home or we're sending you back to mainland Europe or we're shipping you somewhere else. We can't handle you. We don't want you. We don't need you. If Britain's doing that, okay, uh, um, tell me how Germany and Poland are going to handle you know, four, five, six million Ukrainian refugees and Russian expats who don't want to fight for Russia at the same time that they're handling millions of, of Middle Eastern people uh, who are escaping from those regimes. Uh, you can't, you can't provide electricity and natural gas and jobs to your own industries and your own population today. How are you going to provide it to all these other people through your social welfare systems? Mm -hmm. That's the problem we're having in America. We now have in America, we have this massive migration problem from Central and South America. I mean, we've been dealing with this on and off politically since the since 1986. Okay. When when the agreement between Congress and the President Reagan in 1986 was to say, look, we'll legalize all these people who are here illegally now and give them a path to citizenship. But you must close the border and stop this problem. And Congress never did because Congress doesn't want to close the border over here. And they want these illegal migrants. They want them to have a path to citizenship and they want them to vote in the United States. It's power politics over here. Mm -hmm. And there are good sides to it and bad sides to it, right? Well, you don't even have that as an option in the European theater because you can't naturalize them as citizens. Your governments don't have a way to allow that to happen. They don't ultimately get to vote and sort that sort of thing. They truly are an expat community that you have to support and sustain that have limitations on what they can do in the way of work and where they can work and when they can work and your social welfare system has to take care of it. What happens when you, when you burden your own people, not only with that level of expense, but that level of expense on top of factories shutting down, no energy supply, cuts in your food availability and green energy mandates that are actually going to eliminate beef production in your major beef producing countries in mm -hmm. Europe. Um, it, it's so dysfunctional. It can't work. You can't make it work. 
so, sooner so, or later, you got to send them all. Okay. Uh, that that was my next question. What is the solution? If economically or socially these countries aren't uh, prepared or adequately equipped uh, to take them in, what is the solution? I mean, sending them back to a war-torn country or, I mean, what is the solution? How do you, how do you maintain the- an economically viable country but also sustain your social responsibility towards uh you know the other nations the the people are going to elect governments that are going to ultimately say we are not responsible for you in your country in your war in your conflict we aren't you're not if you're not a member of the european common market you're not part of our system if you're not a member of of the nato defense alliance we have no obligation to you mm-hmm Okay, Um, that is going to be the end result because the people are going to make that change. They're going to say, I'm French or I'm Italian. All these people living on the street down here, they're not Italian. They're African. What are they doing in my country? Send them home. This is this is the beginning of something that happened in the 1920s and in the 1930s all across Europe and across the United States and across many countries in the world. And it comes down to the issue of what is the breaking point of your population where it decides it's not going to take anymore and it's going to elect the people who who can raise that fist and say enough's enough and round people up by force and throw them out by force. Is it not a thin line, however, uh, to uh, radical governments? Absolutely it is. That's what you're going to get. You are going to see the strong man governor, whether it's a man or a woman doesn't matter, but that's the term we use is the strong man leader. You're going to see strong man leadership elected. Hmm. For the liberal leadership to stay in power, they have to find a way to allow all of the people who are getting benefits from those who produce in the country to be able to vote them into power to stay in power until, until you can find a way to do that. You are on a thin edge of being replaced overnight by the exact opposite. Wouldn't that create a, 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 a regional political instability? Let's say, for example, in Europe. I mean, we're already seeing it in certain Eastern European countries. They had really, um, I don't want to say radical, but they had really extreme policies in terms of their immigration policies. Uh, and we're seeing that there were um, uh, they were penalized uh, by the European yeah. Union. Uh, <clears throat> if that goes on or if that would happen in other major countries, I mean, you mentioned Italy, for example. And even there, there was a change in government that seems to approach more uh, that way of thinking, those uh, the, 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 those policies. What what's you know, what is Europe going to look like in the next 10 years? if you have more governments like this, that would probably get elected. Um, well, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's the kind of question you got to ask somebody who has a background in, in, in studying political, mm-hmm. um, the political history and political regime change over time. Uh, and the key, the key factors that drive that. And while I, I, do study history and I have a background in that area, I can't tell you what that change is going to be because we don't know. I don't know. And I would refer you to go back to, to talk to somebody like Grossman about that because, you know, or perhaps uh, Dr. Marios, uh, my mm-hmm. friend, because they have a better feel for how that looks in the long run because they've, they've studied it and experienced it over time. I haven't. And I would, I would refer you to them. Uh, let's talk about energy security. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a hypothetical question, but assuming that, you, you know, from what you're saying, uh, you know, socially and politically, we're going to see this trend. 
it's almost inevitable that uh, a more regional political crisis would probably ensue. Uh, and I think that would be catastrophic for uh, for a region like the European Union. You know, um, you're right. You're right. You're right. Absolutely right. Um, energy security is going to be one of the key triggers that results in the forcing of Ukraine to come to terms with Russia. It's not that energy security in Ukraine is going to be the problem. It's energy security in the European Union. Um, you had extremely high prices for natural gas right up until I think Monday of this week when they took a 70% drop overnight because the U.S. is going to ship you a massive amount of natural gas from U.S. terminals. Don't trust the markets. The markets react based on promises of governments, not realities on the street. Okay? The U.S. can promise to send you whatever we want to promise to send you. That doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right? You see, yes, we'll open the our, our, our national petroleum reserves and flood the system with oil for refineries to refine so that we can drive gas prices down in America so that we don't lose the election in 2022. Almost none of that oil went to any U.S. refineries. It got sold to China. It got sold to the European Union. Heck, some of it even went to Venezuela, one of the largest oil-rich countries on the face of the earth. Our refineries are already operating at over 90% capacity, and that is full capacity because you can't get to 100% capacity because you have you have to shut the factories, the refineries down. At, at certain times for maintenance, repairs, upgrades, things like that. So 90% is all you're going to get. We haven't built a new refinery in the United States since the 1970s. We can't support our own population with refined goods. We have a massive diesel shortage in the northeast part of our country. I've got a brother-in-law. He's a long-distance truck hauler not brother-in-law, a cousin. My cousin is a long-distance truck hauler. He works for a major company in the United States. His company has to pay those extremely high prices for diesel. And he could tell you all day long about how we can't even get the diesel to the delivery facilities. Mm -hmm. Our natural gas, we have... We had one terminal in the United States that was the number one transportation source for natural gas leaving the United States and going to the European continent for supplies for customers over there. And that was the one down in, in, uh, in, in Texarkana of Texas. Okay. And if you remember back in August, it had an explosion as a result of overpressurization of pipelines to the actual terminal that fed the LNG tankers. Um, and they, at first they said, three weeks, we'll have it back up. Three yep. months, we'll have it back up. By December, we should have it back up. It's January and it's still shut down and broken and can't be repaired because we can't get the materials in this country to repair it because they're not made in this country. Right. Okay. 80% of the natural gas the U.S. exported to the EU came out of that terminal. There are no other terminals that can carry and pick up that load, that amount of fuel to of, of natural gas to deliver it to your to your, to to the new port that they just opened up in Germany. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not possible. So we can promise we're going to send it to you, but that doesn't mean you're going to actually get it. Well, there's and it will yeah. it causes market fluctuations. So we had we had great natural gas prices right up through. In the United States, our natural gas prices were extremely low. Why? Because we couldn't export it. 
now because, and your gas prices were extremely high because you couldn't get it, right? Well, now we make a promise that we're going to send you all this natural gas. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And our gas prices skyrocketed on Monday. Your gas prices crashed on Monday. Mm -hmm. By the middle of the month, your gas prices are going to be exactly where they were at last week, if not even higher. Because when the cold weather finally gets to you, the cold weather we're suffering here in the United States right now, and that is, you know, these big Arctic polar blasts we've been getting, when that catches up to Europe, Europe's in big trouble. Mm -hmm. Well, they're already in trouble. I mean, I mean, one thing that this war, this conflict <clears throat> created, I mean, it opened up a Pandora's box on energy security. Uh, and it's left many, <clears throat> excuse me, many uh, major European countries, you know, in a state of worry. Um, I, I know that France and Germany are among the major countries that are urgently seeking uh, alternate energy supplies. Uh, I know Greece for a number of years, uh, you know, via Cyprus and Israel has been working on the East Med pipeline. How dependent is the EU to Russian energy? Well, you're seeing it now. Major German manufacturers are shutting their doors this month, sending people home laid off. We forget energy supply is not just the electricity coming through the grid to power your computer, my computer, the internet, and stuff like that. That power comes from someplace else. And that someplace else is either natural gas, coal, oil, nuclear, or the supposed green energy ones like wind and solar. If the wind doesn't blow, you don't have green energy. If the sun doesn't shine for any reason, you don't have green energy. Uh, I have solar panels up here at my mountain house that help to feed the grid for me so that it offsets my power consumption costs on a fluctuating supply side power system. I don't like having to suddenly pay, you know, getting an electric bill that's that's double or triple what I'm normally used to. I can't, I'm not prepared for that. So I spent the money to install solar so that I would have a, a grid backup that reduced my cost to a flat, even level for the next 20 years, mm -hmm. period, right? I've got clouds today. I had clouds yesterday. I had clouds the day before yesterday. My production was of my solar panels, because I can check it right on my phone, was under 1% of its rated capacity, just because of clouds. Mm -hmm. Not because of snow, because I clean the snow off my panels, but because of clouds. So you see that in Europe, if you get cloud cover, the solar systems don't work. You get a wind stagnation, the wind turbines don't work. If you have shut down your coal plants and your oil plants, you can't produce electricity to feed the grid for everybody who needs it. But more importantly, those petroleum products are fundamental to what you produce. Yeah. You know, I mean... Natural gas is used to make medicine. Your medicine, the chemicals used to make medicine you take for high blood pressure, that's not just miraculously produced out of air. No, that comes from natural gas and that comes from refined petroleum products. The, the plastic, I'm looking for something made out of plastic here. The, the plastic for this ballpoint pins cartridge up here that comes from petroleum. That doesn't come from from the air, miraculously produced, or trees, or the ground. That's oil. This is oil. The ink in here is oil. Okay? The rubber on the end of this is not natural. It's, it's oil. It's synthetic. Your headphones are all synthetic. Mm-hmm. The only thing in them that's not synthetic are the, are, the, are the magnets that produce the sound in our ears, okay? And that's what's not synthetic. That's actually taken out of the ground. And for them to work efficiently, they're made out of rare earth minerals, which you're not even mining in Europe anymore. 
everything you get comes from this energy supply chain. If you don't have energy, just energy security to feed your factories, it's not just feeding power to your factories to run, it's feeding the raw materials to your factories. Mm -hmm. The same thing goes for food security. More than a billion people are going to starve this year. One eighth of the world's population will starve in 2023. Hey, that's fantastic if you're into reducing world population. It's not so fantastic if you're an Eastern African where six out of 10 people are going to be living in famine this year. And there is no food to give them mm -hmm. from your food aid systems because that food grows only if you get fertilizer to it. And where does the fertilizer come from? That fertilizer comes from Russia primarily, China, Canada, Morocco, Saudi Arabia. But the number one supplier of potash, which is a key component for all fertilizer, is Belarus. And you in the EU are sanctioning Belarus. Mm. Uh, okay, great. Sanction them away. Go ahead, sanction them. Tell them they shouldn't be supporting Putin's war in Russia, in Ukraine, right? Tell them it's a bad thing. Because apparently you really don't care about the fact that a billion people will likely starve in the next 12 months. And that's I mean, worldwide. If, if, if we go back to energy security in the EU, do they have... Is there any potential on developing uh, its own sustainable sustainable energy supply? You had it. You had it. France is the most stably supplied energy uh, 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 energy reserve country in all of Europe. It's almost entirely powered by nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Germany, under Angela Merkel after the Fukushima disaster, said, "Oh, nuclear is bad. Get rid of nuclear." They didn't even look at the causes of that disaster before they made that claim. And they started shutting down their nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants cannot, you just don't go flip a switch on a nuclear power plant. I know I used to work on them. I used to repair them. I used to, to, to do high-end maintenance and, and, uh, and, and extreme type of situations and stuff on those things. You don't turn them on with a key. Okay. Once you mothball them and you pull the fuels out of the reactor plants themselves and put them into storage they don't come back online for years it takes years to bring them back online if they haven't already been disassembled germany shut down all but what three of their nuclear power plants and they went to green energy which means they shut down their coal and their oil powered plants and their all of their uh, backup surge capacity was fed with russian natural gas um, that's not good planning. That's actually really dumb. And even President Xi in China said that just last year. He said that at the G20. He said, yeah, yeah, okay. And, and at the COP uh, 27, I guess it was, or 26, he said it both times. He said, you know, guess what? We support your desire for green energy and carbon reduction, et cetera. We agree with you. It needs to be done. That's why we're opening 100 new coal-fired power plants every day in China. Because we're not going to transition to the green stuff till we have something that can replace it. Mm -hmm. That's reliable. Wind and solar is completely unreliable and extremely dirty to produce. And the European Union buying into that concept that we need to shift to this ideology of being green is going to result in major problems for most of Europe. Most of Europe, you're already seeing it. You don't have energy security. Interesting. Um, I, I wanna move on because uh, the time is running out and I don't wanna take up too much of your time, but I do wanna um, I do want to talk a little bit about the Middle East 
uh, and everything that is happening in that area, specifically uh, with respect to human rights and individual freedoms. We're seeing uh, the last couple of months in Iran, um, you know, massive demonstrations, social unrest, uh, you know, to pressure the Iranian government to into adopting more Western values on human rights and individual freedoms. Um, you know, the recent World Cup tournament in Qatar also unveiled a situation that perhaps many were unaware, uh, human rights violations, workers' rights violations, uh, uh, this growing backlash against gay and trans uh, movement. Do you think that we'll ever see a more modern Middle East closer to the Western values? Not in the next... Not in the next... 100 to 200 years. Wow. Okay. It's Let's talk Iran. Iran in the 1950s and 1960s women didn't wear hijabs, women weren't veiled, women didn't wear abayas, they were westernized about as westernized as you could get. A lot of that had to do with their direct uh, um, access to and um, support from both Western countries and Russia and other, you know, very modern environments that had, that were not um, theocracies, okay, hardline theocracies. And as a result of that, they had a tremendous amount of, of openness and freedom and all. And when the Shah was deposed and replaced with the mullahs and the theocracy, everything went as hardcore the opposite direction as you could. Um, Saudi Arabia, before the advent of uh, a Wahhabi-aligned government, Saudi Arabia was westernized. I mean, the women there uh, could drive, they could wear their, they could show their hair, they could wear dresses in the street and all. But when the advent of the Wahhabi um, uh, hard, strict religious beliefs came into, into being, uh, and the advent of the religious police, you know, the ankle smackers with the sticks and stuff like that, um, it went completely the other way, real hardcore the other way. And it was only under MBS um, that you started seeing the change going back to the other way. Women can now go out in public without their hair covered. They can drive cars, <laughs> although there's a lot of jokes about that about women driving cars in Saudi Arabia and how the accident rates got up. But but the thing is, is that, that they're allowed to do these things now and they're shifting more to a more open society that allows some Western acceptability in their cultures, okay? But not in Iran. And that will fluctuate back and forth in countries like uh, Bahrain and Qatar. And of course, you know, um, uh, Oman, uh, which has very long British ties, uh, and, and, and the other countries in Saudi Arabia as well. So it kind of depends on where you're at over there and who is in power and what is happening. Um, I'm really, really very surprised. Well, I guess less surprised than I am upset with the Western governments not supporting the uprising about women's rights in Iran. It is a prime opportunity to overthrow a horrible theocracy, abusive theocracy, uh, and get rid of those people and all of the terrorism that they spread all around the world. Because the, um, uh, the, RG, I, the IRGC forces are in fact a terrorist army funded by the government of Iran and carrying out terrorist attacks all over the world or leading into terrorism and, and radicalization of people all over the world. And that affects you and it affects Canadians and it affects Americans and it affects Europeans. But we won't act to support the uprising against that government for a very simple reason. Biden wants to reinstate the nuclear deal with the Iranians mm -hmm. so that it doesn't look bad on his predecessor, Obama. Okay. 
That's the only reason we haven't suddenly shipped in CIA people with tons of arms and ammunition coming out of uh, 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 whatever country we want to load them up in and into that into Iran across the Gulf to, to be able to raise up a, an actual military overthrow of the existing government. Even if it would be beneficial to everybody to have that happen. It's not happening because Europe... When the United States under Obama came up with this great idea that really was totally unworkable, you know, and and unsupportable in any way with the Iranian nuclear deal. And they want to restore it after Donald Trump canceled it. And they want it because it makes them look good in history from a political basis, even if it means doing so results in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people at the hands of of their government so you don't think these social uprisings will bear fruit any anytime soon you think the the, the violence will just keep uh um uh, keep going on it's like anything else it will continue until it is totally and completely crushed by the government or until the people have access to arms and ammunition and leadership that can overthrow the government it's one or the other it doesn't work the other way Interesting. Interesting. And so it's it comes down to just the political will of the people involved, of the people outside the country mm -hmm. that are involved or not involved in moving forward. Well, there seem to be more eyeballs focused in that region than there were in, in previous uprisings. Um, hopefully, hopefully, I mean, you know, we're, we're standing here. I mean, you're in the U.S., I'm in Canada, and we're looking at these situations, and to, to a certain extent, I cannot comprehend how uh, countries can function without these values, right? I mean, we've been so accustomed to this way of life to to the point where it's unnatural not to have these sort of values and rights um, uh, enshrined in you know the constitutions or in their uh, um, uh, in their in their in their legal system. Um, I guess hope. For change is the only thing we have, right? Okay. Uh, okay. First, first off, back up. You need to back up. You say we have these these attitudes, these morals, these these principles ingrained in us for so long, right? And it's part of our life and our culture, and we can't see how governments or worlds functions without these. True. That's mm -hmm. so what you just said. George, I got bad news for you. 200 years ago, 200 years ago, there were two countries in the entire world that had these attitudes, morals, and policies, Great Britain and the United States, because France had already gone back under the dictatorship of Napoleon. Mm -hmm. Okay. A hundred years ago, there were literally only maybe six total countries, seven total countries that had these morals and policies and attitudes. Canada, the United Kingdom, France, the United States. Okay. Germany and Italy both tried to move into those morals and, and, and policies, but their economic condition resulted in them going to fascism. Franco. In Spain, fascist. These these rules of government, they're not even a hundred years old. Mm -hmm. It half or more of the European continent. Okay? They didn't exist that long ago. In the Middle East, they didn't exist at all. They still don't exist in the Middle East. There is no representative government anywhere in the Middle East. That is a true representative government, except Israel. Mm -hmm. Every place else is strong man led and ruled. Okay? It's it's not common, like you think, from our perspective, because well, yeah, you know, we all got cell phones, we all got computers, we all got access to constitutional governments, we all got access to but no, we don't. No, we don't. And no, we haven't. I'm an older guy. When I was born, okay, half the world 
was still under the control of the Soviet Union and communist dictatorships. Mm -hmm. Okay. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Indonesia, all of the central stand states, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and all of those. Most of Africa, well, I think pretty much all of Africa, okay, they aren't us. And they don't have governments like us, no matter what they say. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is not democratic at all. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea is the most totalitarian state since it was established in 1950 in existence, yet they call themselves Democrat. Mm -hmm. There's nothing democratic about that. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, in, our, in my own hemisphere, our own hemisphere over here in, in the Americas, do you really think Nicaragua is Democrat yeah. or democratic in any way? Come on, okay? You can't apply our standards to those countries and those people. It doesn't apply. Our history, our 100 years of freedom, depending upon the country in which you might live, our 100 years of constitutional legal governments or 200 years of government doesn't apply in places where they don't have it or haven't earned it through direct violent overthrow of their existing totalitarian governments. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. You can't apply it on them. So you got to be careful about that when you talk about, about our systems mm -hmm. in their countries. Okay. Please. Not that you said it. I'm not. No, I'm no, 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 no. Yeah. Too many. I was in a discussion just, just a couple of months ago where a former CIA, um, a very American patriotic lady was talking as one of my counters in this group conversation. She was talking constantly. She was stuck on the party line coming out of the American government and the Western governments about how Ukraine's going to win, 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 Ukraine's going to win. They have patriotism. They have freedom. They have a representative government. They have, they have, they have. Every last bit of it's a lie but it's ingrained in their minds that this is the mental thought process. This is the talking point you have to sustain. It's not based on fact. It's not based on reality. It was impossible to hold a conversation with her mm -hmm. because she could not ever accept a counterpoint and debate it. She only had one narrative, and that's a common problem in the West. We develop a single narrative, and we fail to look past that. You have to look past that if you want to be able to see the future. Seeing the future is important. You can't manage risk if you don't see the future. You can't manage energy security if you can't see the future. You can't. If you believe things that are based on outright falsehoods, false information, false narratives, political talking points, then you get exactly what you deserve. James, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I don't, I know that you're a very busy man. I don't want to take up uh, more of your time. Uh, thank you for coming on a uh, very valuable uh, uh, conversation. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and uh, invite you again to visit www.strategyinternational.org uh, for all information uh, pertaining to Strategy International. Um, thank you. Thank you again uh, for doing this. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we can do this again soon. I look forward to having having for you having me back, George, and I really appreciate you having me here at Strategy International. Um, great organization, great information. And I, you know, hope down the road we can talk again, particularly as, you know, Russia's winter offensive starts. That's going to be a good one, isn't it? It's going to be very so, interesting. So you take care over there and, and all of the people listening and y'all have a great new year if it's possible. Thank okay, you. George. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you all in the next episode. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.